you this morning. You can follow along, or you should be able to follow along on the screen behind me as well. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So uh, before we read and go through verses 1 through 10 in chapter 9, I just wanted, since we're getting back into this series after six weeks or so not being in Ecclesiastes, I just wanted to take a few minutes to remind us of what this book is all about. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. He's the son of King David. And he uh, was a very wise person. He was chosen by God to build God's temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And this book is written in a form of the genre is what they would say is um, wisdom literature. And it's a difficult book because it's written in a way that's very, um, he employs cynicism and he employs irony and he, uh, it, it's a it's a difficult book in the fact that we say it's wisdom but yet he's 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 writing the book to portray uh, his frustrations at the fact that oftentimes as we we ended with in chapter eight oftentimes traditional wisdom doesn't always measure up to and always always doesn't prove to be um, fruitful in this fallen world and so Solomon set out in Ecclesiastes to use the wisdom that God had given him to observe everything that's under the sun and try to find meaning and purpose. At least that's what he's tried to convey to us, that he set out to find meaning and purpose in this life. But his epistemology or his, his view, his paradigm and with the lens in which he viewed the world, he only used his senses and observed observation to find purpose and meaning. What's going on? What is the purpose and meaning of life in this world? And he concludes for us, he gives us the conclusion at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. Absolute futility. Or your translation might say absolute vanity, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. That's his conclusion of the matter that if you try to find meaning and purpose he he used the wisdom and his observations and he says it's it's vain meaning and purpose cannot be found it's like trying to wrestle the wind you can struggle and you can labor to to wrestle down the wind but you cannot do it that was his conclusion and he uses this book to to bring his readers through everything that he tried to to find to do in this life to find meaning and purpose and that all led to futility. He goes on, verse 3, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? That's his question. What do we to gain? We go to work. We gain wealth. And as you see the theme that's repeated over and over again that we're going to talk about today, what's the meaning and purpose of all, if all the, the, it all comes down to the fact that we all just die? What's the meaning and purpose to life? In verses 8 and 9 in chapter 1, he says, All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. And the eye is not satisfied by seeing or, or the ear filled with hearing. He says, Everything in this world, the labors that I've gone, it's just weariness. It's wearisome. And, and he, he had, as you, we've gone through the book, we've seen that he, he had at his disposal everything that this world had to offer. And he says, and we're never satisfied with the things that this world can offer us, right? The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. Whatever we see, whatever we hear, we're never satisfied with the things that this world can, says that will give us satisfaction and meaning. We're never satisfied with those things. 
And just a quick outline of the chapters before, he talks about the limitations of wisdom, how wisdom is a good thing, but there's limits to it. And he talked about in chapter 2, the emptiness of pleasure. He, he set out to find meaning and satisfaction and pleasure of this world, hedonism, essentially, and found it to be empty, and emptiness of possessions in chapter 2 as well, and the emptiness of, of work, how, how you labor and toil, to gain stuff, and then in the end, we can't take it with us to, to the grave. And the mystery of injustice and death is found in chapter 4. How there's so much oppression going on. The, the very people that need to be delivered from the oppression are being oppressed by the ones that have the power to, to, to deliver them. And his frustrations with that. And as we see these things, we, we see, can examine our own world and see here in 2022, almost said 21, 2022, it's the same. A broken world, a world spinning what seems to be out of control, frustration with the fact of the injustices that are going on. And in verses 5 and 6, he talks about the loneliness of wealth, right? For me, I've always said, man, if I just had some money in the bank, everything would be okay. But Solomon writes to us in verses, chapters 5 and 6 and says, actually, if you have wealth, that makes you a very lonely person because you can never trust the people around you. You never know their motivation. Are they your friend because they love you or are they friend because they want what you have and that's your wealth? And so it tends to isolate people. People that are wealthy are in constant wonder of who's around me and who's trying to take advantage of that. And so it leads to a lonely life, according to Solomon. Avoiding extremes in verse 7 and uh, words of wisdom in verse, or verse 7, chapter 7. And, and in chapter 8, experiencing conflicting... Uh, ex, ex, his, uh, he talks about, and this is where we closed before we got into the Advent season, his, he, he comes to this conclusion where he's... He's conflicted with the fact that his experiences, what he's experiencing in this world and what he's observed with this world uh, really conflicts with traditional wisdom. Right? We've talked about that. Traditional wisdom says if you're, if you're righteous, if you seek the things, uh, good things, then, then you, will be, uh, you will be successful and you will prosper. And if you don't do the things, that, if you do the unrighteous things, then you will be punished. And Solomon looks around this world and says, no. Actually, it's reversed. Traditional wisdom. The ones that are doing righteous are the ones being oppressed. The ones that are doing righteousness are the ones that put down. And the ones that are doing wickedness are the ones that seem to be succeeding in life. And so he's conflicted with these things. And we see his, why he's come to the conclusion that he has, that everything is vanity. Everything is futility. But we have to make sure we keep in context what, how he's writing this book. And what he's done is in this book is he says, I'm just examining through what God has given me, my wisdom, my God-given intelligence and wisdom, my eyes that he's given me to observe, and I've concluded these things. His, his lens is just what is happening under the sun. And his conclusion is absolute vanity and futility. And this was written 1000 B.C. But yet, as we examine the world today, we live in a culture that is increasingly becoming in this way where they deny the existence of God. They deny a creator. 
that they are beholden to, that they are accountable to, they deny his existence, but the fruit of that is a culture in which says there's truly no meaning and purpose in life. All is vanity. We're just a cosmic accident. This is what's being taught in the theories of evolution and, and all these things. And the culture is increasingly becoming that way according to polls and to statistics, right? It seems like this idea of no God and no accountability to a God and, and, uh, is, is increasingly becoming um, what our society is embracing. But what it leads to is this, as we see Solomon, leads to this cynical view of life. And this cold and incompassionate understanding of human life. This very thing that is humans who have been made in the image of God have been subjected to just an animal. And these are the things that we are dealing with in our modern culture. And Solomon's already mentioned a couple of times his conclusion and he'll end his conclusion. He'll end his book with the conclusion of what truly the, is important, and that is to ultimately live your life with the understanding of fearing God, walking with the purposes of God, fearing God and keeping His commandments, understanding that meaning and purpose is not found in and of this world and everything under the sun. Meaning and purpose is found in God and His purposes and His creation. That's ultimately. What Solomon concludes, and it's ultimately what we see in the complete fulfillment of God's revelation. Meaning and purpose is found in seeking to glorify God in our lives. True meaning and true purpose and eternal meaning and eternal purpose is found in the gospel message. So we'll begin this morning by just picking back up where we left off. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 17. You'll see as you read through the book, as you've, if you've gone through it with us, you've seen a very cynical person who's jaded by the world. And he says, I observed all the works of God and concluded that a person is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. And so he says an orthodox statement. He goes, I know God has created this thing. I know God has created this creation and he's observed this, but he's also concluded the fact that a person is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. He's saying you cannot find true meaning and purpose in the things that are happening under the sun and the things that we observe with our eyes. And this is the message we need to reach to our friends and family around us, to this world and to this culture as meaning and purpose is found and seeking God, and fearing God, and, and uh, being reconciled to Him through the gospel. Even though a person labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. Even if a wise person claims to know it, he is unable to discover it. It's impossible, he says. Unable to find the meaning of life just through observation. And that goes to to bring to the point that I wanted to bring out, that how important it is for us and how blessed we are to have God's special revelation. Right? 
God's creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Psalm 19 says we can see that there's a creator through, just through the creation, demands a creator. But it doesn't tell us who that creator is and how we can have relationship with him or if we can have relationship with him. It doesn't tell us about his, his, his makeup. It's only through God's special revelation that it happens. And so how blessed are we to not have to use our mind and our eyes and our observations to try meaning and purpose just what's under the sun. We have God's special revelation that has given it to us where the true meaning and purpose is found. God has revealed himself, who he is, and his purposes in his creation found in the Bible and his preserved, inspired word. That is where we can find who our, this creator is and how we can have relationship and meaning and purpose how blessed we are to have it. If we didn't have that, we would be the cynical Solomon. That would be humanity's only option. No meaning and purpose. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. How blessed we are to have God's revelation. We know who God is. We know what His purposes are. We know that we can be reconciled to Him. All those beautiful things. He goes on in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1. Indeed, I took all this to heart and explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. Another orthodox statement of God's sovereignty. He says, I observed everything and all I concluded that God is in control, but humanity is not. He says, the righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't People, on the other hand, don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. We don't have the uh, understanding of what's going to happen to us tomorrow. We don't know what's going to belie our past tomorrow, but, but the, the revelation, God's special revelation is clear. God does. God is in control. Only God knows what will happen tomorrow. Only God knows what tomorrow brings. We do not. And I hope that's a source of comfort for you this morning. God's sovereignty. No matter how we feel like things are spinning out of control, God remains in control. That's what his special revelation declares to us. Solomon writes in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap. It's kind of like drawing straws, casting lots into a into a bin or a piece of cloth and then someone pulls the lot out to, to determine. That's, in fact, that's how Matthias was picked as, uh, to replace Judas as one of the 12 disciples. Is that the, the disciples casted lots and let, because probably of this verse, right? The loss is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even drawing, casting lots is under the purview of God's control. All of things, God's things are in control. Isaiah 46.10 says, declaring the end from the beginning. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He's declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient of the times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, declares the Lord. Psalm 139.16, this is a psalm from King David. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book. And planned before a single one of them began. King David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
says all of our days are known by God and are planned, written in your book, he says. God is in control. For me, it's just a source of great comfort that although I may not know what's going to happen tomorrow or next year, God does. And God is in control. We can rest in Him. Rest in His purposes that He's carrying out. He's allowing to be carried out. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Solomon declares that his frustration, again, returning to this continued theme, this repetitive theme of his frustration of death, that one fate awaits us all, and that is death. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices the one who does not sacrifice. Do you see he's, he's comparing and contrasting the righteous versus the wicked? You can do all the sacrifices you want or not do all the sacrifices you want. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices you do, versus, you're still going to die. Death still awaits. Again, that cynical attitude that is forced upon us by trying to find meaning and purpose in just what's happening under the sun. He goes on, as it is for the, for the good, so it also is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also it is for the one who fears an oath. Verse 3, this is an evil. In all that is done under the sun, there is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of my people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that, they go to the dead. So he says, death awaits everyone. We all have one fate. And as we've gone through the book, we've, we've seen and, 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 have, and have demonstrated the fact that we're so grateful to, that God has revealed his, who he is and how we can have relationship with him. And that's through his revelation, his special revelation. But it's, a, it's an important aspect that we try to understand. It's God's progressive revelation. He progressively revealed his will through human history. Thankfully, we don't stop at Ecclesiastes to conclude that all we have to do, there's no meaning and purpose, and we're just going to go to the place of the dead. No, God has revealed progressively through human history that there is much meaning and much purpose and in the eternal life that uh, the curse that happened in the Garden of Eden will ultimately be reversed and God will be amongst His people. And we will dwell with our God. And so what Solomon is writing here is, is a limited view of what God is doing. Again, he's limiting himself to what he's observing with his eyes. And he says, if there's meaning and purpose under the sun, it's fruitless because we all just die. Additionally, he says, not only do we all just die, there's just one fate. While we're living, we have to put up with evil and madness in the people, hearts of the people. Right? The consequences of the fall. We've gone through in the past sermons through Ecclesiastes and demonstrated the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the consequences of that right, are all around us. 
That we are all rebellious against God. Humanity is rebellious against God. And we put up with evil and madness. And the very, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, the very fact is that all of us suffer from the effects of the fall still continue today. Even us as Christians. Right? It's called the noetic effects of the fall. We're damaged because of the fall. All of us have a bit of psychosis we have to deal with because that's the effects of a fallen person in the fallen world, in the fallen state. And this is what he's saying. I've observed not only that there's one faith, that the hearts of the people are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. They go to the place of the dead, he says. And that, as we've demonstrated, is not the end of God's story. God has revealed through, progressively has revealed through his revelation that that is not the end of the story indeed. Verses 4 through 6, live with, understand, live with understanding that death awaits. So he, he goes on to try to give the reader, and I, I really struggle with this, this section because it seems like it's just, he's very cynical about, you know, death and dealing with evil in this world. And then all of a sudden he goes, but here's your hope. Right, and he just like juxtaposes this in, just suddenly thrusts us upon us. And it's is it really hope? Again, he I think he's demonstrating the frustration and trying to find meaning and purpose of just what's going on under the sun. He says, "But there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living." So the hope is found in those who are living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. Right, a lion is majestic and powerful. But he's only majestic and powerful when he's alive. If he's dead, he's not majestic and powerful. A dog, on the other hand, and the the Jews at this time would would see dogs as the lowest of all creatures. To be called a dog was very insulting. But at least a live dog was alive, is what he's saying. And so he's trying to tell us, he's coming to this seize the day moment in this passage of scripture of look if all we have is what's going on under the sun then let's seize the day let's live let's drink and be merry for tomorrow we die verse 5 for the living know that they will die but the dead don't know anything there is no longer reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten their love so the the love that the person that has died has has gone their hate their envy, all that they've done in this world have already disappeared and there's no longer a portion for them and all that is done, again, with the perspective of what's going on under the sun. So what does he tell us to do? Seize the day. Carpe diem. Go eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already accepted your works. He's saying God is accepting of the fact if you enjoy life, go enjoy His creation. Go out and do these things. Drink your bre- or eat your bread and, and drink your wine and be cheerful. It's, it's pleasing to God. God accepts those things. Let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. All right? He's contrasting a person who's in, in mourning, and, and repentance in and, and the Old Testament, that would be someone who would dress up in sackcloth and ashes as opposed to someone who's very, being cheerful, right, who's dressed in white. And instead of sackcloth and ashes, he's dressed in white clothes and oil, 
never lacking on their head. Enjoy life with your wife. You love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For that is your struggle. For that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. He says, so he's given us three different categories, right? And feasting, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. Um, and then in, in our marriage relationship, enjoy the wife that you have. Because if this is all that is, is in life, then, then enjoy it. Enjoy the relationship that you have with your wife and, or her husband. Because life is fleeting. And he talks about in the third category, our labors. Verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength because there is no work planning knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And so he concludes in verse 10 where we're concluding in Ecclesiastes today says, do these things, do them energetically because this is all you got. And then after you die, there's no planning knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the place of the, of the dead where you are going. And praise be to God, we know that's not the end of the story. And we've gone through it. But this is what our culture is left with to conclude. There's no meaning and no purpose. And I hope your heart breaks for them. Because if you're in Christ this morning, you know there's much more to life than what just happened under the sun. God's Amazing purposes being carried out of salvation. And the reverse of the curse is His gospel being proclaimed throughout all the world so that we can be reconciled to Him and that we can dwell with our God for all of eternity. So much more than what this society declares to be true as they rebel against the God who created them. Again, so we come back to the, this understanding of uh, just grateful. Hopefully, if we can take anything away this morning, is the fact that right we know what God is doing. We know that there's meaning and purpose, and it's found in uh, in Christ ultimately. And the only way we know that is to understand that God has progressively revealed that throughout human history. So, uh, one thing that we can take another thing that we can take away this morning is we don't we don't just jump into the Old Testament and pull out a, a statement like what we've just read and said this is the truth. We all just go to the place of of the dead and we we just cease to exist, right? That's not taking God's completed revelation into in full and in full context. All of God's revelation needs to be considered, and we understand that God progressively revealed His plan of salvation. And we find that again in the New Testament. And this idea of, of death, just, just we cease to exist in the place, of the place of the dead. The Old Testament isn't, there's not a lot about what happens in the afterlife found in the Old Testament. Because God's progressively revealed that to us. Now we can look back and we can have a clear, precise definition or understanding of what God is doing and what the afterlife will be like. But at least in the case of Solomon, 
He was unclear of those things. He just said the dead went to be with the dead. But the New Testament declares something far different. Paul says, so we are always confident in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So while we're here, in this earth, under His creation, we are physically away from the Lord. But he goes on to say, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Right? We hear the gospel declaration that Jesus died for us, saved us from our sin and what we truly deserved if we've trusted and believed and turned from all else and completely placed our, our faith in Him. The promise of Scripture is that we will be saved, we will be given eternal life, we will be reconciled to our God. But it's a walk of faith. Right? A certificate of achievement doesn't just fly down out of heaven and says, congratulations, here's your ticket. It's a walk of faith. It's a truth claim that's been given to us by God's word and we, by faith, believe it. And Paul says, while we're here, we're absent from God. We walk by faith, not by sight. But he goes on to say in verse 8, in fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Apostle Paul, a representative of Jesus, who writes in the inspired words of Second Corinthians, says this, when we are absent, for those who are in Christ, when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. That's the promise. And as much as our heart breaks for Melba, and much as much as we will miss her, we are confident in knowing that as soon as she slipped from this earth, she was in the presence of our Lord. Such a great salvation. Such meaning and purpose found. What God is doing, rescuing and reconciling us to Him. And that's what we cling to as Christians. The spiritual blessings that are promised to us in Christ are given to us that we we cling to by faith. That gives us the hope of what is coming. I just want to go through the in hymns of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul opens up his salvo of Ephesians, just this beautiful letter, by declaring all the spiritual blessings that are found in Christ for those who have encountered Christ in a saving way and have placed their faith in Him. He says, for He chose us in Him. And so if you're in Christ this morning, these are the spiritual blessings given to you. Before the foundation of the world. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him, right? Christ's salvific work has placed us holy and blameless in the eyes of a holy and just God, not because of our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. The great imputation. Christ took our sins and paid the penalty of our sins of God's wrath upon the cross, but then gave, turned around and gave us for all those who would believe his righteousness. And God the Father no longer looks at our sin, but He looks at us as forgiven because He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because all who have placed their faith in Him have been placed spiritually inside of Christ, His bride. We're holy and blameless in love before Him, not because of what we have done, but what Christ has done. And there's several verses that I'm just skipping over. I'm just going through the in Him passages, but I encourage you if you're ever... 
struggling, Ephesians 1 is a place I often go to to remind it of what God has done in Christ. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. We've been purchased from our sinful nature. The slave uh, owner of sin has been uh, broken. Christ redeemed us. How did He pay for this? Through His blood. Through His shed blood. We've been given the forgiveness of our trespasses. We've been forgiven of all that we've ever done and all that we will ever do. Christ paid for it all. According to the riches of His grace. That wonderful word of grace. That word of grace is so important to a person who's like me, who's a legalist at heart, who wants to earn it. But as you examine God's word, you understand you, there's no way you could ever earn God's love through what you've done and through your righteousness. It's only through the righteousness of Christ, and that is his grace. He's given to us what we don't deserve. Unmerited love and favor given to us in Christ. Verse 11, in him we also received an inheritance. That's good news, church. This world is not our home. We look forward to the the world that is coming, the eternal life that is coming, this inheritance that's been given to us because of what Christ has done, because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. There's again that circling back to God's sovereign control of all things. He's in control. We can rest in that. We have received this inheritance because God is working this out. He's not confused at what's being thrown at us every day. He's in utter control. How many times have we seen the Bible, the Scripture declare that all these bad things that are happening, God is using for good. Beginning in Genesis and Acts chapter 4. I was reading this week about in Acts chapter 4 how the disciples were, right? Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and they're being bold and proclaiming Jesus and the religious leaders are like, uh-uh. They call him in and says, you can't, you can't preach Christ anymore. And they're like, look, it's up to you what you do with us, but we will not stop preaching Christ. And they had to release them because the entire town, Jerusalem was like, they just had healed this man that had been deaf or paralyzed. I can't remember what ailment he had. And everyone saw the wonders, wonders, miracle that had just happened. And they begin to pray to God in Acts chapter 4 and tell God just how amazing it was that they, even though that Herod and, and all the political leaders and the religious leaders meant evil to, to kill Christ, God allowed it because he, from the foundation of the world, used the, chose to use Christ and his dying on the cross as the means for our salvation even though those men meant it for evil, God used it for our salvation. And it wasn't plan B. It was from the beginning, the foundation of the world. In Him, verse 13, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God has not left us alone. Christ told His disciples, like, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to send the Comforter. For all those who are in Christ, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you and desires to change you into the image of Jesus. How are we sealed by the Holy Spirit? 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So we heard the gospel. I pray that you've heard the gospel, that Jesus has died for you. Salvation isn't found in a religious church system. Salvation is found in you and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner and your sin has separated you from God. And there's nothing that you can do to earn your way back to him. The only means in which God has provided a way to be reconciled to him is through trusting Christ's um, substitutionary atonement for you. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit when you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you heard it, and not only heard it, but you believed it. And believing means abandoning hope and everything else. You don't just add Jesus to a long list of things. Abandoning your hope and all else. Trusting in Christ's accomplished work. And when you do that, you're sealed by the Spirit. These are the many blessings that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And look at the contrast that we have with cynical Solomon who says, look, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, and that's the society we live in, versus what all of God's revealed revelation has declared to us. Now, this world is just, our life is like a vapor in this world. But eternal life is the promise for all who are in Christ Jesus. We don't just go to the place of the dead, we will be alive, we will be bodily resurrected will be, exist for all of eternity in the new heaven and the new earth where God will be our God and we will be his people. The verse will be recursed, reversed. Yeah. So, it also doesn't mean that we need to be ho-hums in this life as well, right? We, we, we are in Christ and, and we are to be the salt and light of the earth. And, and because we are in Christ, we, we know that whatever befalls us in this world isn't the end. But how can we be salt and light of the earth if we, if we don't have the joy of the Lord in us? We have every right to experience God's creation and enjoy it. As fallen as it may be, we are to glorify God. Not only are we, we are entitled to it, we, we are commanded to enjoy this life and the experiences that he's given to us, that we might live it out for his glory. Solomon says, eat, drink, and be merry, because you never know when you're going to die. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the same thing. Eat and drink and enjoy yourself. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, and this is the difference. Don't do it for yourself. Don't do it for your personal satisfaction and to find meaning and purpose and happiness. Do it for the glory of God. When we go out this afternoon and we have a steak or a cheeseburger, okay, I'll stop talking. I'm just getting hungry just talking about it. We don't stop at the food. A person who rejects God and his existence stops at the food and says, man, that was a good steak. It was for him and him alone, but we go and we have enjoyed the steak and we say, thanks, God. You provided that for us. We give you the glory in that. We 
have the opportunity in our relationships, in our marriage relationships, in our friendships to glorify God because God has released us from the power of sin and, and we have a, a, an opportunity for the Spirit of God within us to, to, re, to begin to reverse the curse now inside of us. That our marriages would be reconciled to what God is doing and our marriage is no longer for our own um, happiness, but our marriage and what we do with our spouses is for the glory of God. And we can find joy in that. Because we've, as we've seen in through the Advent and many other sermons in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, as we walk in, in the fear of the Lord, as we walk in step with the Spirit who has sealed us, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, begins to be produced in us. In spite of this world, what a difference. How much more meaning and purpose is found in what God is doing versus what is found under the sun. I pray that we all can take an account of ourselves. Try to examine, as I've done, try to do this week. What am I living for? My own self, my own happiness? Because Scripture says if I live for the glory of God, that's where I will find my joy. That's where I'll find my happiness. Living our lives for His glory and for His purposes is where we find true meaning and purpose. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Lord, for this opportunity, God, to be reminded of what You've done for us, God. We're so um, just grateful that your revelation didn't stop at Ecclesiastes, that you've shown your entire rescue story in your scripture, in your holy word. We're so grateful to be recipients of this great salvation that is found in Christ. God, it's from that that I pray that you're, by the power of your spirit, you would empower us to live out the joy that you've set before us that we would be the light that you've called us to be that we would be the salt that people would see the joy in knowing you in us that they too may be drawn to the light that they too may have eternal life found in your son I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not encountered Jesus in this saving way that today would be the day that they would abandon hope in all else and they would believe and trust in Christ alone. By the power of your Spirit, by the authority of your Son, we ask these things in His name. Amen.